Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss the Pitch Your Pivot competition she helped judge. We sit down with Bruce Harvey to talk about photography, Habs hair reports, and working in remote places. And finally, you want to take a guess at how many tennis balls they go through for Wimbledon. Wimbledon, as it's spelled, um, but for know, one like tournament. It's not like... Um, no. 5,000. So if you multiply that by 10, you're correct. Wow, really? Yeah, just for that tournament. 50,000 tennis balls. by going through them, you mean like they squash them until they're just... like, Or they use them once no. they're done? Or So they basically, the temperature of tennis balls affects the way they balance. So they have to keep yeah. them at a specific temperature. And once they get too warm... They're unusable, so they don't use them anymore. They get I don't know what the hell they do with them afterwards. I was gonna say, like, uh, don't do they donate them to they should back pain or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, they donate it to like the, the rollers, you know, like you put the little tennis balls at the bottom of the roller so you can slide it along. <laughs> that's what they Well they donate do. them to nursing homes. Yes, that's the word I couldn't think of. Jeez. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> I have Wimbledon tennis balls on my Walker. There you go. Yeah. That's it. If they don't do that, I think they should. Wimbledon so, Walker series. Yeah, right. The, the Wimbledon Walker. That's funny. I like that. The Wimbledon Walker. Um. <laughs> you can use that one of your shows if you'd like to. Oh, dear. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> what every comic loves to hear. Hey, you can take that joke I just gave you. <laughs> okay. All right, Dad. You're thank welcome. you. Yeah, yeah. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Hit that music. All right. Following up from last week, we mentioned that there is a job board that you can post jobs, but we didn't mention that you can also upload your resume if you are looking for jobs. So check that out on the website at nap jobs.careerwebsite.com. Also, Nick and I love doing this show. And if you love it too, we would like you to help us keep doing it. So we need your help. If you can help out with sponsorship, that would be great. Head on over to www.environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for more details. Now let's get to our segment. Cool. So Laura, I was rummaging through LinkedIn the other day and I saw you were participating in something called like the pitch your pivot pitch competition is that right do i have that yeah what is that yeah it's a super awesome amazing program for women entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. here in the central actually it's central new york and cleveland i think what (laughs) (laughs) why cleveland (laughs) because it was sponsored by key bank and i think that's like Um, where their headquarters are but they have branches here and a friend of mine here tamika otis she's part of a company called jumpstart and started working with KeyBank on a, I think it's a four-year program to put together these pitch competitions for women entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So they train them so women can apply. And then the ones that are accepted, you know, make it to the final round, they get right. trained in how to do a pitch, how to talk about their business. And so they, they get a pretty quick and intensive training for that. And then they have the actual competition. So I was honored to be asked to be a judge for this, the one they did in Syracuse, which was the final one. So after the four years, they've done them in Albany, Buffalo, Syracuse, and Cleveland. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Yeah. (laughs) If I'm getting that right, but I think so. Anyway, it was completely amazing. The women who made it to the final round this year were all just awesome. It's really hard to choose. I think there were five or 
I think five judges total. So essentially they had an hour and a half event and the first Mm -hmm. part of it there were, so the women did their pitches and then we judges went into a breakout room in zoom and did our, you know, pulled our numbers together and discussed who we thought met the criteria best that they had. And, and then the, while we were deliberating, they had three, I think young entrepreneurs who've been working with Hassan Stevens with the good life foundation here in Syracuse, who helps at risk youth through Mm -hmm hip-hop and technology and all these other really cool programs so they had so i kind of didn't get to see that until the recording but that was really awesome too and i don't know i just i love doing that kind of thing and it was just really cool to so the winner got ten thousand dollars dang yeah her name is jasmine conan she's a dj and so the whole thing this competition specifically was about your pivot during covid so interesting. Okay. Part so, of the judging was what was your business before COVID and what is your pivot? What is your business after COVID? Yeah. And hers was a real pivot. Like she was doing parties and events. And then, you know, what happens when parties and events oh go my away? Gosh. Instead of just collecting unemployment and waiting for things to come back, she yeah. started this whole youth program teaching people how to DJ. And she has a booth actually in Destiny Mall here. Not a yeah. booth, but a location. Oh, wow. And so. I can go to the mall and take DJ lessons like super, super cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's called on the one. It's really awesome. Oh, and wow. they, she also they the fair was just here and she was a big part of the first annual DJ festival mm-hmm. it was, was an all day thing at the fair one day, which is really awesome, too. That's really cool. So it's, I mean, like when you, you started talking about it, I'm like, is this Shark Tank? Is that what's happening here? A little but bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's really cool. So how many entrants did you judge? There were five when they got to us. So I don't know. I don't remember how many people submitted, but a different group of people vetted the people who made it to the final round. And then we just judged the the actual pitches. And it was like one of those things where it was like really obvious, like, hey, this is the person who should win. Or was there a really good debate about about who should actually? (laughs) Yeah, we we did go with how our numbers shook out, but there was some discussion and it was close. You know, there was they're all still like doing amazing things in the community here in Syracuse. One is a a female barbecue chef. So, mm-hmm. and she's like teaching young kids how to grill and be grill master. So like That's grill cool. master is a thing, you know? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah, you know, yeah. listen, it's kind of thing that you don't pay much attention to. And then you listen to their pitches and you're like, man, <laughs> yeah, really right, cool. right. <laughs> um, one woman is operating a 24 hour daycare, which is so, so needed here in this community. And especially 20, like yeah. during COVID. Yeah. Um, another one is, well, the other one was actually one of our webinar speakers really urban tea yeah so leticia was on a webinar the lead, last leadership webinar yeah yeah and so you know she's talking about environmental justice and she has a background she's an environmental engineer not environmental engineer but she's an engineer during the day mm-hmm. um and then in the evening or <laughs> her spare time she she's has Batman. this program yeah. called woke wednesdays where she's trying to promote black entrepreneurship and just ugh, how to succeed i don't know uh, she's just mm-hmm. doing like an empowerment program Right, right. Here. And so she was she was looking for funding to expand her program. The last one, and last but not least, was Carissa Richardson. And she has a shop downtown in Syracuse called Ecodessa. And it's all sustainable fashion, which is really awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it's she's super fashionable. She's also one of the counselors at the Wise Women's Business Center here. So mm-hmm. Her, I mean, in my heart, I'm like, ooh, she needs to win. But, you know, all fair right. judging. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I wanted them all to win. Uh, love <laughs> right. a DJ as much as I love sustainable company. So yeah. it was all great. But they all won something. So it was like 10,000 okay, to the first place winner, 5,000 to second place. 
2,500, whatever, the last place got 1,000. So they all won once they made it to that round. That's really cool. That's awesome. That's a really, how did you get involved in stuff like that? Like if I wanted, like I want to be involved in stuff like that. (laughs) It's really just all of the background that I have with business consulting. And then I've been doing a lot of work here with the community. I make it a point and purpose to be involved in the black and brown spaces and try to do things not only with the Wise Women's Business Center, but with like the Creators Lounge and with the other different types of businesses and and people who are doing stuff here. So just being engaged in the community in a robust kind of a way. So Mm -hmm. it's just like getting a job. It's about who you know, you know, it's a little bit my background experience, but a lot of it is just Tamika invited me because I spoke at a Fearless Queens event a few years ago and she was there and she's like, I want to work with you. Right. (laughs) Couldn't tell you what I said at that event, but whatever it was, (laughs) spoke to her. (laughs) I mean, Fearless Queens, what a name. That's a great name. Oh, yeah. So shout out to Tommy Billingsley. She's another woman here who is doing a lot to just help black businesses and young entrepreneurs and women in entrepreneurship to Mm -hmm. just empower them to get beyond peddling and really having an actual established business. And so Tommy, she's, so she had this fearless Queens event that she put on for a couple of years. And then this year she changed it. There was an event called queen street. So it was a vendor market for black women. And they had a couple of panelists who spoke to Mika, one of them. And it was just great. She gave them all like a chance to not only come and vend, but learn from the speakers. And there's just a lot of need for it, especially with COVID and, and people needing to find ways to make money and yeah, really be serious about their work and their businesses that they're trying to start. That's really awesome. That's really cool, Laura. I mean, like, I'm glad you got to do it. I'm glad we got to hear a little bit more about it. So thanks for asking, Nick. It's, you know, it's a lot of fun to do. I wish I could do more of them, but you know, I could talk about this all day. So right, let's, right. let's get on to our interview. Sounds good. All right. Welcome back to EPR. Today, we have Bruce Harvey on the show. Bruce is a historian and cultural resource specialist. He's also a fellow photographer, and I started following him shortly after I moved to Syracuse. And I couldn't help but notice that between his architecture photos that were completely amazing and his national park photos that I needed to be stalking him. (laughs) um, (laughs) It was really interesting for me to find out that he worked in Anipa. So that's really cool. So welcome, Bruce. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Maybe just kick us off by telling us a little about the work that you do. Sure. I'm an independent consulting historian and photographer. The work as a photographer really is in service to my work as a historian. I'm not doing commercial photography or weddings or anything like that. It's all in the service of being a historian. I work in sort of two different arenas. One is environmental compliance, the Section 106 world, cultural resources evaluations for part of the NEPA process. And the other sort of work that I do is work, I do a lot of work for the National Park Service, mostly writing administrative histories, histories of individual units of the National Park System. So So I I do both of those (laughs) kinds of work, both the Section 106 work and then just work as a historian writing book-length studies. Yeah. And do you do that all over the country? Yes. Yeah, really both of them all over the country. The Park Service, especially, a lot of the work that I do for the Park Service, I work as a part-time occasional employee of a small firm outside the box that does mostly federal, all federal contracting work. And through outside the box, we do a lot of work in the Midwest region. So I've worked on administrative histories, uh, Missouri National Recreational River, the Harry S. Truman Home. Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas, 
But the consulting work, the work uh, under Section 106, I pretty much worked coast to coast, Washington, California, mostly, though, on the East Coast, from New England all the way down to Florida. Yeah. Very cool. And so how do you get to do that from Syracuse? You must have contacts all over the country? Pretty much. I've been working in the consulting historian field for 26 years, I think. And I started in 95. And I was working for an archaeological and preservation planning firm in Charleston, South Carolina, Brockington and Associates. Right. And that put me in touch with a number of people. We did a lot of work for the Army Corps of Engineers, which sent me around to all sorts of... The Mobile District of the Corps of Engineers is very... At least at the time, they were very aggressive in getting work throughout the country. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were a preferred consultant for them. We had very good relations with the cultural resources staff of the Mobile District. And so they sent us, in addition to all over the Southeast, they sent us a couple of projects in the West Coast, one or two others. So in that work, I got to meet a number of people, fellow practitioners, people who are working at that time, either in the SHPO, in the State Historic Preservation Office, mm-hmm. and now other places, I've kept in touch with them. I went from Charleston in 2003. My wife and I moved up to Syracuse. I took a job with a, an engineering firm, Kleinschmidt Associates, where we, mm-hmm. uh, they focus on energy and water resources projects, mm-hmm. so mostly hydroelectric work. And that, again, sent me around the country for different projects to Montana, Arkansas, and as well as the East Coast. And again, just continuing to meet people, either sub-consultants whom we would hire, I would hire, other cultural resources, people that I would hire, state sort of preservation office staff, other consultants. And then I went on my own in 2009. And so the people, in that case, the people whom I had hired as sub-consultants while at Kleinschmidt then started hiring me. Right, right, right. Um, it's kind of an odd business model that I have and that I there are a number of cultural resources firms that will need someone like me for specific projects, but they can't afford to have me on staff full time. They can't keep <laughs> right, me right. billable. They, right. they, they, can't, they don't have enough billable hours for me for right. a full-time position. But they know to call me, they have a project they want to bid on, they would like me to go with them and to help help the other uh, proposal. And it's just worked out well for the past what 12 years, I guess. I've been on my own. Yeah. So I've, you know, I've been following your photography since I moved to Syracuse and it's beautiful. So when did you get started doing photography? How long have you been doing that? Really quite a while. The work that I was doing in Charleston, South Carolina for Brockington Associates, we did quite a lot of architectural survey work, road widenings, other sorts of public projects that are going to impact buildings. So we just had, we had to go to the project and start photographing a 35 millimeter film at that time in the mid 90s right. you know and, and i just always enjoyed the, the photography part i started doing the large format photography which is what you use for the abs and hair photography i got okay. going with that in the late 90s but i had first found out about it when i was working in my master's degree at university of south carolina and i was trying to study architectural history and i mm-hmm. found that i was getting more interested in the photographs of the buildings than of the buildings themselves. I mean, I love the historic buildings, mm-hmm. but in terms of really delving into the details, I found I had less patience for the details of the architecture and more for the photograph itself. 
Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So uh, after a number of years, I didn't pursue it very diligently at the time, but I, it was always in the back of the mind and I would mention it occasionally. And it's through talking to people that way, I found out about large form that the photographs that I was seeing were mostly done in a large format camera, which I didn't know what that was. And I kept mm-hmm. asking around, asking around. And finally, when we lived in Charleston, I mentioned it to a friend who had been a commercial photographer. And he said, well, I've got a large format camera up in the attic I'm not using anymore. Do you want to, use, want to try it out? So he showed me the basics of it. That was probably 97, 98, something like that. And it just started to click. And I just found that I really enjoyed it. It's a fascinating way to take photographs. It's much slower. It's more cumbersome. But it's fun. But I also knew at that point I was working for Brockton Associates. And I knew that Habs and Hair Photography was another tool to add into my kit as a consulting historian. So it was, it's fun. It's an enjoyable way to take photographs. Yeah. So I'd love to hear more about like how those two things tie together. So the Habs and Hair reports, so the photos that you're taking for those reports, can you kind of walk us through like what is the purpose of those and how do they kind of tie into Section 106 as well? Sure. It, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Habs and Hair is the, you keep burrowing down to that little dark corner of the Nipa mansion. And yeah, yeah. There you find <laughs> totally out true. Was, you know, scurrying around for crumbs to pick up in that little dark corner. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very small sub, sub, subset of Nipa. Mm-hmm. But to start with the basic haves and hair, it's their acronyms. It's the Historic American Building Survey and Historic American Engineering Record. HABS was originally a New Deal program in the mid-1930s to put out-of-work architects uh, mm-hmm. to work mm-hmm. by doing measured drawings of massively significant historic buildings, you know, Mount Vernon, that sort of thing. Yeah. Over the next year or two in the mid-30s, they started adding some historians and then some photographers to help the architects. And so over the course of those few years in the 30s, they developed a set of standards and guidelines for documenting historic buildings. It includes large format black and white photographs, the historic narrative. And in some cases, now it's interesting, now it's only in some cases are there actual measured drawings that are done. So that... That New Deal program, the Historic American Building Survey, left, left us the legacy of standards and guidelines for a formal, very formal documentation of historic buildings. Here, Historic American Engineering Record was added in the late 1960s, part of the wave of social history, the growth in the interest in social history to include not just the big important buildings, but power stations, hydroelectric facilities, canals, other sorts of engineering things that tend to be in the background, but are significant nonetheless to the nation's development. And then in more recent years, they've added HALS, the Historic American Landscape Survey, to pick up on the wave really since the late 80s, early 90s, of the interest in cultural landscapes and understanding the significance of cultural landscapes. The standards are maintained and in evaluated by the National Park Service. The Park Service does have, I think they do still have one large front of photographer on staff, but mostly the Park Service, they maintain the Habs and Hair collection at the Library of Congress, and they oversee the development and implementations of the standards and guidelines. So Habs and Hair, it's usually done as mitigation. And uh, under within NEPA, the 
cultural resources segment of NEPA, of course, is driven by the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, as amended, section 106 of which, I just love that. It's either one sentence or two sentences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) It just calls for the head of any federal agency to, and the phrase is, to take into consideration the effects of their actions Mm -hmm. on historic properties. And that one little sentence has created this industry now. And the regulations that implement it specify how you're going to evaluate whether something is a historic property, how significant it is. It outlines procedures to try to avoid effects to the historic properties. And then after you go through all this flowchart of, you know, if this, then that. Yeah, right, right. If at the final end, the resource is found to be significant and it cannot be saved, then you talk about mitigation, ways to make up for the loss of that resource. And one of the standard ways, it's not the only way, but one of the standard ways to mitigate is to document that resource to the standards of HABs and HAIR. Yeah. So that's how you get, it's a whole flowchart process that goes through, and which is why I say it's kind of down at the very tail end subset of <laughs> right. the Section 106 process. And what it entails, usually there are different levels of effort involved in HABs and HAIR, levels one, two, and three mostly. Level one is for the really significant and important stuff, national historic landmarks, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. For those, it's large format black and white photography, a historic narrative, and original measured drawings. And then you move down into levels of effort until you just get large format photography, a brief narrative, and copies, if possible, of existing plans of the resource. The way the photography fits in. The Park Service is really held to the standard of large format black and white negatives. And large format, what we're talking about with large format is the size of the negative. Mm -hmm. There's there's a 35 millimeter format for film. There's medium format, the 120 film. And then large format is in sheets of film, either four inches by five inches, five by seven inches, or eight by 10 inches. Oh, wow, yeah. And there are a number of reasons for all of those choices. The film is used because, well, black and white film specifically is used because black and white film, when properly processed, is more archivally stable than any other image that's there. I think if I remember, I I would stand to be corrected on this, but if I remember hearing somewhere the Library of Congress had estimated a 500-year lifespan for properly processed black and white negatives, Wow. But they're ju- as long as they're processed properly, clean, fixed, clean, washed, yep. they're pretty much indestructible. Uh, leave them in a de- you know, leave them in a desk drawer in Texas for a couple of decades and they'll be fine. <laughs> right. Um, right. When you're dealing with a last recordation of a really significant historic property, archival longevity is an important thing. That's your goal. So black and white negatives are used for longevity. The large format. It's the bigger negative. So at least before there were really good digital cameras, it was the highest resolution, the greatest detail you can get. Yeah. And it's still, there are very good, there are good digital cameras that can get just as good a resolution now, but they don't give you a negative. Right. The other thing that large format, it allows you, large format cameras allow you to control the shape and the focus of your image that normal, that, uh, 
normal cameras won't let you do. These are the cameras with the bellows they use with a black cloth and a tripod. Right. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what the bellows allow you to do, you can move the lens and the film independently of one another. So you can change the shape of your image in a way that will let you correct for perspective in a mm. way that normal cameras can't. You can avoid keystoning where the top of the building is pointing inward. If the building is truly vertical, then you show that it's truly vertical. And the, these view cameras, the large format view cameras, will let you do that. That's pretty awesome. It is. Yeah. Ten or so years ago, I photographed an 1870s apartment building on the edge of the one of the Androscoggin Rivers in Auburn, Maine. It was a three or four story building built right on the edge of the river and it was listing about three or four degrees, oh, which wow. is why it was going to be torn down. <laughs> right, yeah. And I leveled my camera perfectly and you can see the degree to which the building is listing. Yeah. So you can really control focus, you can control the shape of the image in a way that you can't do with a normal camera in camera itself. Right. You know, digital man, you know, digital manipulation of digital images, you know, you can do all sorts of things. But actually in the camera created at the time you're standing there, the large format camera gives you that flexibility to control perspective and control shape. So that's why you use black and white negatives in large format on view cameras for Hebs and Hair for the accuracy. That makes sense. That's very yeah. neat. It really is. Plus, so, it gives you a great excuse to keep using that camera, right? <laughs> you know, I know that the Park Service, from what I understand, they're starting to experiment with ways that digital technology can be used for Habs and Hair documentation. They are already allowing digitally printed contact prints in lieu of traditional wet darkroom processed contact prints. And from what I understand, they're starting to look at ways to use, the, especially the new HABS photographer for the Park Service, starting to look at ways of using digital technology and HABS and hair documentation to maintain the archival quality of, of the image. But I can't help but thinking there's always going to be room for the traditional large format black and white photography for HABS and hair. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you need a backup, honestly. Uh, exactly. And it, it's also tried and true. You yeah. Know? The chemistry is the same since, what, the 1890s, early yeah. 1900s, I think. Yeah. The technology you need is a light bulb in a dark room to make these prints. <laughs> um, yeah. You yeah. know, it's a deceptively simple kind of process. It is tried and true. They know the technology works. They know how long everything lasts in archives. So I, I think, there, it's, it, it, yeah, the Habs and Hair is a very nice way to keep, allow me to keep using this very old technology, even with new equipment. Gotcha. Well, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, you mentioned that your work is all over the country. So have you been able to travel? Has your work stopped over the last year? Are you traveling again? I never stopped traveling. Uh -huh. I, it doesn't have anything to do with COVID as far as I know, but my work, I've just been getting quite a lot of work in the past two years. Yeah. And it didn't let up during COVID. The National Park Service only has recently reopened and now they're starting to close down again. So yeah. my park service work, at least the, the field research part of it, I had to put most of that on hold. But other projects, my Section 106 work and Habs and Hair work has continued unabated. And I've been, this has been as busy a travel year as I've ever had. Wow. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, even last year during the pandemic, I still had work in Maine, New Hampshire, New Mexico. Uh, I think there were one or two others. Oh, Eastern New York. There we go. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so this is uh, this is going to be an unfair question. So I just want to <laughs> preface that. But um, okay. okay, so you've taken a lot of photographs of a lot of different yes. buildings in a lot of different areas. Yes. What's your favorite? Your favorite? Uh, you know, I think about that sometimes because I, I, down in the basement, I've got files of thousands and thousands of four by five images. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to pull something out for some reason. It's like, oh. Gosh, I really, I wonder if that's one of my top 10 favorites. <laughs> and, and, and that'll happen to me 30, 40, 50 times. Uh, some one of those is going to be in the, in the top 10. But there are a few that I, that's whenever I think of enjoyable photographs that really come to mind. Back in 2007, I did some volunteer work for the Erie Canal Museum here in Syracuse, where they did an exhibit on the way that hydroelectric power was integrated into the creation of the Barge Canal. Mm -hmm. In the 1910s, when they reinvigorated the Erie Canal and the subsidiary canals in New York State into one system. And when they did that, they incorporated hydroelectric power, both to power the locks, Mm -hmm. but then also they, in many cases, they used much bigger dams and they allowed private companies to build hydroelectric facilities, hydroelectric plants at canal dams. So I, for the summer and fall of 2007, I went around the state and did a lot of photographs. And one of them, as it turns out, was in my hometown, a little canal town uh, in Western New York. Yeah. It was in Newark, New York. And it was, I went there actually with the curator of the, of the museum at that point. Now he's the assistant director of the Erie Canalway National Heritage Corridor. We drove out on a, just a spectacularly beautiful October day in 2007, and we had pretty much finished in Newark, finished with everything I needed to. And just as I was putting the camera away, there was I noticed that the the moon was starting to come up, and you could see it mm. across a little stanchion that went across the canal. So I I don't know that I've ever set the camera up quite. I'd already put the camera away, but I set it up as fast as I ever have before <laughs> because the moon was rising. And this yeah, was yeah, four o'clock or so in the afternoon, and. I had to move the camera once or twice. It's not a fast way of doing photographs. Right. And by the time I got it set up, the moon had actually moved out of where I wanted. So I had to move the the camera once or twice. And I figured out the filter that I needed. I think it did just one negative of it. And it just worked. It worked. The moon is small, but when I, with careful printing, you can see it. The light on the metal stanchion across the canal just glowed. Yeah, uh, it's a nice reflection of a small powerhouse in the canal. So that's one that kind of that's one that sticks with me. But like I say, anytime I go into the files, I find it's like, oh, God, <laughs> yeah, that's like yeah. my, my favorite. Yeah, so yeah. That would be one of my top ten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's hard to pick out one, but that that is one from my, especially since it's my hometown where I grew up, a little small town in central western New York. That's one that sticks with me. For the record, everyone listening, the meows today are not brought to you by our podcast. That's yeah. Harvey's podcast. <laughs> That's the I, photo I, cat. I apologize for that. She can be vocal. <laughs> it's okay. No You're in a safe space here. friendly place, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it's, you know, speaking of, like, you know, your history of projects, you've, you've been all over the place. You've seen all kinds of things. You have a more recent one doing a hair report at NASA's White Sands Testing Facility oh, in New Mexico. Yeah. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, gosh, that was fun. That's another one, actually, I did. I didn't do as an independent. I did that through outside the box because it was a federal a federal contract. As an independent, I just can't really contract directly with the federal government. The right. Accounting and all that is too difficult. Yeah. So they, NASA had issued an RFP. We responded. We won the work. It was to document an engine test stand at the White Sands Test Facility near Las Cruces, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It was a facility that NASA built in the early 60s as part of the Apollo program. Oh, wow. It was designed to test not so much engines, but really propulsion systems for some of the lunar, the lunar excursion module and the lunar command module. They built a series of different facilities within the White Sands Test Facility to do different kinds of tests, different components. And the one that I was documenting, they built it in 64 and then altered it in 65 to create what's called an altitude test chamber, a, a big giant circular tank about 30-some feet in diameter or 30-some feet tall where they could create a vacuum. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So they can test propulsion systems at different altitudes. They can create a different levels of vacuum to yeah. test or simulate different altitudes. And it had been, it has been used, this particular test stand had been used since 96, I think. Okay. So they're getting rid of it. They'll be replacing it with another structure. And it was just such a dream come true. The, oh, yeah. Uh, I've never been in New Mexico before. It was spectacularly beautiful. Laura, you'll understand this. Being in Syracuse, as a photographer, we don't usually think of light in terms of being really intense. We have murky, right. we, have, <laughs> yep. we have clouds, we have overcast. Doing the work there was really pretty, it was difficult photography in that the light was so intense. The structure has a lot of open metal grating, so there are a lot of shadow areas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. That intensity of light, it was difficult to get images that had a good, even exposure. But it was, all of the photos worked. It was some of the one of the best set of photos that maybe I've done in my 20 whatever years. Nice. NASA had to do a lot of the research for me because it was in facilities where I just didn't have access to either at the Johnson Space Center um, or others. So they provided me with most of the information. I then wrote my narrative. I did both the photography and the historic narrative for it. And it was just a picture-perfect project. Other than, you know, there was a delay in getting out there because of COVID. Right. I was supposed to do the work in March of last year, right when everything was shutting down. But in late, in sort of early, late August, early September, it looked like things were doing better. There were fewer quarantine restrictions. And most importantly, also, NASA lifted the order for White Sands Test Facility that kept all non-essential people off the facility. And it shut down again not long after I was there. There was about a three or four week window where things were open and I happened to be there at just the right time. Yeah. So I got the work done, did the narrative. NASA was incredibly helpful and supportive, both the NASA and their contractors. And it was about as smooth, especially for a, a project on this scale. Yeah. Uh, it was about as smooth a project as I've ever had. Plus, I got some of the best photographs in terms of a series of photographs, some of the best, one, about the best series that I've ever done. So it's like one of the 30 or 40 in your top 10? Is, uh... <laughs> one, one or two of them, one or two of the photos, yeah, are, there was one in particular that I remember 
that I set up. I just did a, I recently, I've been very bad about updating my website, but I did just put a post about that on my website. And the, the, the first image is one when I, when I set up the camera with a large format camera, the way it works is that the reason you have a black cloth is when you're composing the image, you set the shutter open and it shines back on a piece of frosted glass at the back of the camera, which is exactly where the film will be when you put it in. So you can compose your image there. The first place I set the camera up to do this one view with this lens that I knew would work for it, immediately on the ground glass, like, oh my gosh, this is the picture I've been waiting for. <laughs> yeah. And But with all, always with film, you don't really know until you see the negative. So when the mm-hmm. negative came back, it did exactly what I'd wanted to. It lined up perfectly. It frames nicely. And yeah, that's, that's a contender for the top 10. There we go. Yeah. So do you get to, to keep the photos or do they own them? Like what's the copyright on those? Uh, well, the copyright issues, no, the, the photographs have been submitted to and accepted by the National Park Service for delivery for to the Library of Congress. So any photographs that go to the Park Service, I actually sign a waiver, I mean, a, a release that they are now in the public domain. Uh, okay. So there is no copyright. They are public domain photographs. I always shoot for, at least for the documentation projects, I always shoot two negatives of every view. Mm-hmm. I like insurance. Yeah. Uh, just because film can be unpredictable. You might have a scratch on the negative. You might have a camera shake. For whatever reason, something just might not work. So I like having the backup. So I have all of my backup negatives for almost all of my projects, especially the ones that are done for Habs and Hair. They are, they're all public domain. So I can use them, but really anyone else can also. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, now I know when I see your stuff on Instagram, what's happening there. So <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> yeah. But you, you see, so you also do a fair bit of volunteer projects. Can you tell us a little bit about like, a, was it volunteer photography for the Preservation League? That, that was fantastic. The Preservation League of New York State, every other year, they solicit applications for and then select their what they call their seven to save. What the Preservation League has determined as the seven most threatened properties around the mm-hmm. state. Yeah. And the threats can, will be in a wide number of types. Local organizations will prepare nominations to be on them. It's the list you actually kind of want to be on. Oh, okay. Because when you're selected, the Preservation League then takes two years to help you address whatever the threats are, whether it's support with fundraising, technical preservation support, legislative support, having studies done. So it's a fantastic program. It's not just a raise awareness thing, but the League actually works with the local communities to address specific threats. In 2016, I saw the, the list, the seven save list being, uh, it was announced in March of 2016. And I know a friend and colleague is, actually she just stepped down as the vice president for policy for the league. And I got in touch with her and said, you know, what about maybe doing a Habs hair level, not quite as comprehensive, but doing Habs hair level photographs of these seven to save, either as a backstop in case you're unsuccessful saving them, or to help maybe awareness, maybe an exhibit, or, you know, figure out something to do. And it took her about, you know, three or four seconds to say yes. <laughs> right, right. Because I, I volunteered my time, they covered my travel expenses, because it was going around the state. Right. 
The first year was in 2016. I have to admit, I volunteered to do all seven just so that I could photograph one of them. <laughs> it was the right. Newell Memorial Library, which is Stanford White's masterpiece at yeah. what is now the Bronx Community College. It was the upstate up was the uptown campus of New York University, I think. Mm. He designed a three-building complex with a library and two wings. And not being a professional photographer, the likelihood that I would ever get a chance to photograph a Stanford White building is pretty much nil. Yeah. So I volunteered to do all seven of them, mostly so I could do the Google Memorial Library. And it was, I boy, to have that library all to myself for a day with, with a four by five camera it was just a dream come true. I did all seven of them that year and we did an exhibit. We were sort of feeling a way through that it wasn't until the next year that I did the, made the prints for an exhibit that they showed at. They renovated some gallery space in their office in Albany. We did an exhibit. So then in 2018, we did a little bit more in the way of advanced planning. They let me know the list before it was released so I could start to make some plans. And I actually hurried along and completed all the photography by the summer of 2018 so we could actually open a, a new exhibit in the fall of 2018, which they then traveled around the state. They brought it to the communities where the threatened properties were located. And it was, yeah. that was a really nice thing. We didn't do anything in 2020 in part because I had a little bit too full of plate to do the kind of traveling. And then it turned out I wouldn't have been able to travel anyway, or at least not, right. not like I would have wanted to, but hopefully I can do that again. It's a fun way for me to see things and it helps to get a little bit of awareness, both through the exhibits that travel around the state. And then of course, I put the images and the travels on Instagram, link to the league, get a little bit of awareness going with that as well. Nice. That's nice. Super cool. It's fun. Well, Bruce, we are at our time, so I can't wait to Already. be able to tag along with you on one of these projects one day. We've been talking about this for a while yeah, now. Yeah, um, absolutely. You're, you will <laughs> be welcome anytime. Yeah, and we're going to send Nick a selfie so he can see what we're up to without him. <laughs> right, 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 right. I'll take it. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to share with us before we go? Not that I can think of. No, this is, but this has been good fun. I'm most grateful for the chance to talk to the two of you and be in the program. Enjoyed it. And uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, too. And, and before you go, why don't you uh, tell people where they can get in touch with you, uh, your Instagram and your website? Oh, sure. Well, the website is the official way. That's bgharvey.com. Yeah, bgharvey.com. bgharvey.com. The Instagram is where I tend to be more active just because it's fun. Yeah. Uh, is at bgharveysyr. And then email is, uh, anyone's welcome to reach out by email. It's bgharvey at me.com. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Excellent. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to the two of you. Thanks, Bruce. We'll see you soon. Take care. That's our show. Thanks, Bruce, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Bye. See you, everybody.